So ordinarily, uh, I try to start off a message with a funny story about something that's going on uh, in, in the world or something that's happened in my life. But today, I actually want to start off by talking about a pretty serious story, and it's the worst experience I have ever had in church. So it's about 2005, and I was in North Carolina on North Carolina Central's uh, campus. My friend and I were teaching a Bible study on campus, and this week, there happened to be a series of revival that were happening on campus. And a lot of the Christian ministries were coming together to suspend their Bible studies and all come together for one large worship service. They brought in a speaker who I've never heard of before, and we told the people that were coming to our Bible study, about 20 or 30 people, hey, this Wednesday, we're not going to have Bible study. We're all just going to go to ch this church service on campus together, and we'll go to Waffle House later. We get to the church, and uh, we get to the service, and this joint is packed. There's like five, 600 people in the room. And at the end of the message, the pastor or the preacher says, I have a prophetic word for some people in this room. If you've ever been to a church like this, this could mean a lot of different things. Um, <laughs> so he told everybody to lift their hands in prayer, and since I heard he was about to call someone out, I put my head down, and I said... If he's going to call on me, he's going to have to earn it. And I had my head down and praying, and he, gave, he brought somebody up and gave them a prophetic word. And then he says, you with the gray shirt on, I want you to come up. Again, I had my head down, and then he was like, you, touch that man right there with the gray on. And I feel the person next to me, like, elbowing me, like, he's talking to you. <laughs> so I slowly walked up to the front, and again, not knowing what to expect, um, I uh, raised my hand. He told me, to, hey, lift your hands uh, and receive this word from God for you. The prayer started off normally, you know, God has something for you, this, this, and this. And then it truly did turn to a nightmare unfolding in front of me. He looked at me and he said, next time, the condom won't work. And I was like, okay, we are in uncharted territory <laughs> right now. I was like, what do I do? Do I push them? Do I like say no? Up to this point, um, I became a Christian on Morgan State's campus in Soper Library in about 2000. And for the five years leading up to that moment, I had been abstinent. Not only had I been abstinent, but I invited the people from my Bible study to hear this sermon and to hear the, and the, these 20 or 30 people are looking at him, praying over me, basically telling five or 600 people that I was having sex and next time the condom won't work. It's funny, we were at our teaching team meeting, and uh, my wife, she's so mad. She was like, what is his name? I'm like, what is his name? <laughs> so, baby, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. <laughs> uh, that day in church, for the first time really ever, I felt so isolated. I was so embarrassed, and I felt so labeled. And those are the things that you should never walk away from church feeling. I was so isolated, even though there was hundreds and hundreds of people in a room, I mean, the spotlight truly was on me. I was so embarrassed. He was calling me out for something that I wasn't even doing. And I was so labeled. Now, the reason I bring that up is because my pastoral hope is that as we're talking about sex today in our Embodied series, is that nobody leaves feeling isolated, embarrassed, or labeled. That would bring me great uh, sadness if that's the way anybody left today. And I also want to give an apology from the Big C Church to anybody who's really exper experienced that in some way or another from your church, even if they meant well or didn't mean well. 
Shout out to you for not giving up on the church and for you being here today. Uh, to the men and to the women in this room who've also experienced sexual violence, I realize that some of these concepts might be triggering in some capacity, so I will do my very best to talk about things in such a way uh, that will be helpful and tasteful. So why are we talking about sex? Well, everybody's talking about sex all the time. And your bodies are really important. Uh, this entire Embodied series, we've been talking about the value and the sacredness and the preciousness of our, of our bodies. And one of the things I found to be extremely helpful is, uh, you know, growing up, um, we had a lot of I had a lot of friends before I even had a car. Um, we would ask our friends to, I would ask friends to borrow their car or whatever. And my friends who had like a hoopty, um, y'all know what a hoopty is? A, a dong cha for my Koreans, uh, a clunker for my white folks. My friends who had a hoopty, like when they would let me borrow their car, it like I saw the way they treated it. They treated it like garbage. They parked it anywhere. They didn't care about how the car was driven. They had stuff all inside of it. So whenever they let me drive it, I didn't care how I drove it. I didn't care where I parked it. I treated it just like they viewed it. But I've also had friends who have had cars that were like pristine. Everybody had that one friend growing up who had a car and who like basically worshipped their car. One of my friends had this Camaro that he would like clean the wheels with Q-tips on the weekend. <laughs> and he put so much money in this car and that thing was in pristine condition. Whenever we would go anywhere, he would park so far away from everything. I'm like, bro, we should have just walked from the crib. <laughs> you parked in the other direction of where we live, I mean. Because he didn't want anything or getting close to that car. And one day he tossed me the keys and let me drive his car. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't even have fun driving the car. Because I knew he valued it so highly that I didn't want to treat it. I didn't want anything bad to happen to it. I drove the car around the block one time at like 15 miles an hour, brought it back and handed him the keys like this. Since he viewed the car highly, I treated it with a certain level of dignity and respect. Now, here's what the scripture says about our bodies. It says, for you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When the Bible talks about your body, the body, the skin that you are in right now, it talks about it that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator, and your bodies really do matter. And check this out. How we use our bodies or don't use our bodies is a reflection of how we view the preciousness of our bodies. If we view our bodies as hoopties and it doesn't matter what we do, we will treat it accordingly. Another quick caveat, um, sex is important, but it's not like the ultimate thing, right? I've been in so many different places, uh, in secular contexts, in, in church contexts, where they talk about sex as like the ultimate thing. I was listening to a podcast, and a woman was talking about uh, how um, sex was the fullest expression of her humanity. And I was like, golden retrievers have sex, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, rats have a lot of sex. <laughs> sex is not the full expression of your humanity. As a matter of fact, humans are the only mammalian species that really give thought, the level of thought and intentionality in terms of who they will have sex with. The most human thing is actually being careful about who you are having sex with. One of the, uh, 
most profound truths that the church has lost sight of is the fact that in early Christianity, in the life of Jesus, Jesus never had sex, and yet he, had, he was the fullest expression of what humanity is meant to look like. So sex can't be ultimate because Jesus never had sex. Paul, the author that we're going to be looking at today, Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians, yo, I would tell y'all to remain like me and remain unmarried. Sex was not a part of Paul's life. In the early church, if you were unmarried, you got to sit in the front of the house. And the married people, y'all sat in the back somewhere. Because singleness and devotion to God in that capacity for men and for women was the highest expression. In Christianity, sex is not the full expression of humanity. Devotion to God is the full expression of humanity. And that could look uh, very different depending on your life stage and life situation. So Jesus never had sex and his humanity was, was full. Um, another quick thing about why we're talking about this today, because even though it's not the ultimate thing, sexuality certainly is an important thing and it's not just physical. Earlier, we talked about our worship team led us in saying we worship God with the breath in our lungs, with our hands lifted up. Um, we serve people with our hands and with our feet And we've been talking this entire series that our bodies are not just an accessory that we walk around it, but they are a major part of our faith. Now, a lot of times culture convinces us, and sometimes we convince ourselves that sex is only physical, and uh, the reality is the opposite of that. It was designed by God to be so much more. However, the the 800-pound gorilla in the room for some of you is that you grew up in a culture of uh, what has been known, uh, I guess, at the time and also now as purity culture. So when they would talk about sex is not just physical, it's spiritual, uh, the way purity culture would talk about it, predominantly towards young girls, was your life is like a flower, and there's like six petals on the flower. And every time you have sex, one of those petals falls off, never to be put back on again. And you don't want to live your life in such a way that you have nothing to hand your husband. Purity culture, I do think, wanted to intend well, but really what they left for people was a lasting, uh, so much shame in their lives. They elevated sex to be something that was, in some ways, unforgivable. The challenge with this is that what Jesus talks about, when he talks about purity, he takes it way further than that. He says, if you, any of you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So the purity that Jesus talks about and the script, that Scripture actually demands is so far above that nobody in this room would ever be able to raise their hands and say, yes, I am the one who has met the demands of purity. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who actually truly lived a pure life. Now, not only that, but what it has done is uh, it's very dangerous because it denies a major theology in the Bible called justification by faith. The goodness of Christianity is not that you and I will do a perfect job and have a spotless and blameless record. Although the Bible does call us to try, the Bible is always against us feeling like we have earned something. The Bible is not against effort, but it is against earning. Justification by faith is one of the major pillars of Christian faith. If you know nothing else about Christianity, it means that you and I, our standing with God is not based on your individual performance, but rather it is based on the performance of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Romans 3.21 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God had God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. When the Bible says that you and I can be justified for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, it means that the record of Jesus Christ. See, a lot of times we think about uh, these terms and we misunderstand what they mean. Justification is a legal designation that you have been declared righteous. Jesus' status has been put on your shoulders. And because he earned the victory, we get the victory. All of the Bible actually points towards this beautiful reality. You know, when I started reading the Bible through this lens that the, the Bible is not about me and what it demands, but it's about Jesus and what he has already done. The gospel is good news, not good advice. I started to see the whole Bible through a different lens. The story of David and Goliath is a perfect example. Uh, most of the time I thought that David and Goliath was about if I try really hard, then everything in my life, the opposition is going to fall down in front of me. If you've been to church four times, ever been to vacation Bible school, you might have heard the story of David and Goliath. David is this puny little guy, and he goes against this giant, and he kills him, and uh, he refused to wear Saul's armor. And people have talked about that story in the terms of uh, nothing that stands against you. If you believe, nothing that stands against you will remain. And you can, you can tackle and conquer even the Goliaths in your life. David and Goliath is not about you and human bravery. David and Goliath is about the unlikely hero, the one that was rejected by everybody else, that comes to the front of the, uh, of the battle line, and in using unconventional methods of combat, he kills the enemy. And check this out. Everybody in the entire Israeli army got to celebrate as if they had won the battle, even though they did nothing. All they did was sit on the sidelines, and as soon as David conquered Goliath and cut his head off, everybody got to carry away the spoils of victory, even though they were scared and sitting on the sidelines. That is justification by faith. One went ahead of us, slain death and the evil one, and we get to inherit all that goodness of his fight on our behalf. That is the goodness of justification. God has made things, all things new. And in all of the conversation that we're having about sex, don't ever lose sight of the beautiful hope of Christianity. Now, there is a huge difference between shame and guilt. Shame says I am wrong based on what I have done, that I am wrong, I am broken, I am uh, deformed. Guilt says I have done something wrong. God in his goodness, like a good father, extends to us when we have done something wrong and calls us towards, calls us back to the table of love and repentance, uh, but he never shames us and says that we are broken beyond repair. So please don't hear anything I'm saying uh, coming through that shame-filled lens. But sex is also a major part of how our, our faith informs the way we live in our bodies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 says, don't you know yourselves don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, up until a couple of years ago, all I knew about uh, sex really was just the prohibitions against not doing it um, when I wasn't married. But sex is not just, the, the, the biblical ethic of sex is not just about what you can't do. Uh, it really shows that it's a gift from God, and the church has really misunderstood and miscommunicated along the way to try to, to avoid pitfalls. I think about it like this. Uh, years ago, my wife and I, with some friends, went to Philly. And if you ever stood in line to order a Philly cheesesteak, different restaurants have different formulas for how you have to order the cheesesteak. And my wife told me how to order it, and I was sitting in line so nervous 
that I would order it the wrong way and get the wrong sandwich. All I kept on thinking about was the line I had to say when I got up to the front of the counter, and I wasn't even paying attention to the beautiful cheesesteak that was waiting me, awaiting me. I think in a lot of ways, the church has kind of treated sex like that. All of our attention has been away from what God intended us to have, um, and it's on the prohibitions that have been placed in front of it. And because of that, we have a really narrow view, and some people might even go so far as to say that the Bible's Christian sexual ethic is regressive, or it's harmful, or it's limiting, or it's just outdated. My uh, challenge to you is that you haven't even heard the half of how beautiful the Christian sexual ethic is. Now, for most of my life, up until a couple of years ago, to be perfectly honest, um, I understood uh, what I understood about sex was mostly formed by two competing ideologies, and neither one of them set me up well. Uh, the first was toxic masculinity. Uh, in toxic masculinity, women are notches in your belt, and having sex was my ticket to manhood. If I really wanted to prove I was a man, if I really wanted to prove I was the man, I would have as much sex with as many women as possible. Now, this was not demonstrated to me in my house growing up. My parents were married for like 212 years. <laughs> but this was all around me in the culture. And to be perfectly honest, this really did form me very powerfully. Now, there's a hundred different problems with this approach, um, but they all boil down to the belief that women were to be used for my enjoyment and my consumption. Now, what has come in the previous couple of decades is this reclaiming sexuality from our culture that instead of saying men can have all of the fun, now it's saying everybody should be able to use other people for their enjoyment and for their consumption. But then I found Jesus in college. I found Jesus in college and I became abstinent. And for nine years, from the day I became a Christian in Soper Library on Morgan State's campus until my wedding night, I was abstinent. But the only thing I learned from the church was don't do it if you're not married. So there I was in the hotel room after my wedding, and I was saying, the only thing I've learned from the church is don't do it. Now I can do it. And I had no idea what a sexual ethic that I should have had. And here's the, the God's honest truth that in many ways um, was one of the most harmful things to my marriage. Instead of now wanting to use multiple women for my consumption, now I can use one woman for my consumption. And I looked at my wife as the sole source for my enjoyment and consumption, and I would be mad at her if she wasn't as sexually available as I wanted her to be. And it wasn't up until a few years ago, a number of years ago, that I had to be discipled into my sexuality and to unlearn a lot of different things that I had learned from the culture. Now, these are my cultural assumptions. These are things that I learned in the circles that I grew up in. You might have different ones. I'm sure many of you do have different lenses, and you come to the table with a different set of assumptions. And here's the thing about cultural assumptions. One, they change like crazy. You know, in the 70s, it was perfectly okay for a college professor to have sex with his 18-year-old students. It was like totally normal. And you were like a prude if you would have objected to a professor and a student having sex. Now, obviously, because we have a better understanding of power dynamics, we see how wrong that is. Now, in some ways, our culture now is more restrictive over sex than it was even in the 70s, and that's not a right or a wrong thing, it's just our culture changes. All of you have come into this room with cultural assumptions about what is permissible, what is good, and your culture, you know, is, should never be the final arbiter of things because it changes so much, and sometimes, many times it misses the, the beauty of 
what the gospel wants to present. You know, there's a couple of cultures that it's like totally okay and normal to just call someone fat to their face. One of those cultures are uh, my, my Nigerian people. I was in the gym. <laughs> and I was talking to this one guy from Nigeria, you know, the, about the stuff that bros talk about in the gym. And he was like, hey, man, do you do cardio? And I was like, yeah, I got a Peloton. I do two rides a week. And he was like, that's good, man, because if you didn't do cardio, you'd be really fat. And I was like, I can, okay, thank you for that. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you just have the body style. I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> I was like, all right. Let me, time to do cardio right now. Thank you. <laughs> my Jamaican people, I was going to my grandmother's house a couple of, uh, when she was alive, and uh, Jamaican auntie, I walked in the house with a bag of McDonald's. That didn't help. And she looked at me and said, Jordan, you're fat. And I was like, all right, this is, this is awkward, but I'm still going to eat this McDonald's. Um, in my culture, we have respect. We, talk about, we call people fat behind their backs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We don't do it like the rest of those people do it. Now, culture is a, a funny thing because it really powerfully informs the way we, we view so many different things. And my hope today, my hope today is to be the black Bob Ross and to paint a vision. He had an afro, though, so he might be mixed. <laughs> to, paint, to paint a vision for what the Bible says sex is all about. Now, I know this church is a lot of, we have a lot of diversity, not just in terms of um, ethnicity, but also in terms of uh, church experience. And here's what I want you to do. For those of you in here who don't know what you believe about the Bible, once upon a time you might have believed in it and now you no longer hold to it, here's what I want you to do. Just give me this one assurance. Promise me that you won't judge what I'm saying until the painting is done. As I'm you know, do, doing the first couple of uh, uh, strokes about the tree in the woods or whatever that Bob Ross does. When you first look at the painting, you're like, that joint is trash. I don't know what he's about to do. And at the end, you're like, yo, Bob did it again. He did it again. <laughs> so I want you to resist the urge to disagree with anything until we paint the whole painting. So in her book, Rethinking Sex, an author named Christine Emba, she says this, rethinking sex is not just about rethinking sex, the act. It is rethinking the way that we approach our bodies, our relationships, ourselves, and those around us. It's rethinking the possibility of what sex could be, and get this, and raising our expectations. It's not just finding ways to prevent disappointment, it's finding out how to pursue joy. This is why I say sex is a deeply spiritual thing. Now, this is where our current landscape has left us. And Christine Enba in the book talks about the, the symptoms of our culture today and the flippancy in which we approach sex. She says, as a result, it's left many of us feeling jaded and discouraged by the romantic landscape, its lack of trust, its lack of emotion and commitment, but also feeling as though other options aren't reachable or even realistic, or experiencing too much of the kind of sex that saps the spirit and makes us feel less human, not more. Sex that leaves us detached, disillusioned, or just dissatisfied. Or constantly craving more and more and more sex and feeling dissatisfied with the willingness or ability of other people to fill that void. Now, the good news is the Bible has a much more beautiful picture of what sex is and should be about. Now, as a starting point to really diving into scriptures today, I want to use a phrase that the Bible actually introduced to the modern world. 
It's a word called consent. It's a type of consent. It's not any type of consent, but it's the type of consent that makes sex a humanizing, beautiful, dignifying expression of intimacy between a husband and a wife. Now, a lot of people think that with regards to sex, the church has always been a step behind, but the opposite is actually true. The early church was groundbreaking in how it discussed and, and how things pertain to women and culture and sex. The Apostle Paul was groundbreaking in his idea and promotion of this concept of consent. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul talks about this issue of uh, sex needing to happen by mutual consent. Now, I have done a lot of research about writers in antiquity, and I have yet to find any author that predates the Apostle Paul in saying that everybody has to give consent before having sex. Men and women need to discuss the frequency and the times that they have sex, and uh, husband and wives need to um, have these conversations about the times and the frequency and when they want to abstain. And the sex can only be entered into with mutual consent. Now, prior to Paul's introduction of these, con of these concepts, women in Greek culture and other cultures were duty-bound to do whatever their husband wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted. They were not viewed as equal in the eyes or that they should also derive pleasure from the sexual experience. They were, in many ways, objects. Now, in ancient Greece, the notions of sex ranged very wildly, uh, but they were always, women were always duty-bound, whatever their husband wanted. And in ancient Jewish understandings, Sex was viewed as permissible in marriage, but only for the fulfillment of childbearing, and it was frowned upon to have sex solely for the fulfillment of desires. Paul comes along, and this New Testament Christian community comes along, and they are groundbreaking in their view of sex, that it was honorable and undefiled, and that men and women had to agree by mutual consent. But this type of consent is just the starting point for the Christian worldview of this concept of consent. It takes the concept of consent and raises the bar so high. Christine Emba continues in her book, Rethinking Sex. She says, over the past two decades, realization that the consent-based ethic wasn't always getting the job done has prompted attempts at refinement. Simple consent was no longer enough. One now needed to get the right kind. In the 2000s, consensus moved away from no means no as the right consent formulation and coalesced around Yes means yes instead. More recently, the discourse has moved towards enthusiastic consent. The yes needs to be engaged, excited, and active. Now, where our culture is headed is in a good direction uh, to hopefully prevent some sexual violence. But I want to use some scripture that's going to really push the boundaries of what enthusiastic consent looks like. Now, I am not saying that people are not capable of consenting to sex without the Bible. But what I am saying is that what the biblical ethic of consent is, I'll just call it super-duper consent. <laughs> the biggest indictment that I think Scripture makes against our modern-day concept of consent is that our modern-day concept of consent, no matter how enthusiastic, it's not consensual enough. Now, our modern-day context says, I'll give you permission over these body parts for the next 15 to 18 minutes. What Scripture calls is not to give you consent to just use your body or for me to use your body, but rather it raises the bar and says, I don't just give you permission to use some body parts for a couple of minutes, but rather I give you all of me, not a part of me, not a part of me for a limited time, of, uh, not all of me for a limited time, but I give you all of me for all of time. This is um, the biblical ethic and the Christian ethic of consent. 
The Christian worldview is that sex is a sign of intimacy where both spouses pledge to give all of themselves. This is the super-duper consent. It's an act of self-giving love to your spouse. It is the opposite of toxic masculinity in our other hookup culture. Check the scripture out. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And then Paul drops a curveball, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul inextricably ties the biblical notion, the concept of sex, the husband and wife coming together in a sexual union to Christ and his union with the church. Meaning that the mystery of a husband and wife coming together physically and becoming one flesh in some ways is a sign and reflects the true nature and the reality of Christ being united to the church. Paul is going so far in the scripture to say that sex is a sign of intimacy and it points to the priority, closeness, and devotion that Jesus Christ has for the church. That is a level of commitment that sex is supposed to reflect. Again, it's raising the bar of what it's calling you to give. What is Christ's commitment to the church? First and foremost, it is sacrificial. Jesus has given himself on our behalf. And the concept of sex is not about me using you for my pleasure, but it's me giving you my life. One of the most beautiful illustrations of Jesus' sacrifice happened on uh, August 16, 1987. Northwest Airlines Flight 225, 225 crashed just after taking off from Detroit Airport on its way to um, Arizona. One person survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. Cecilia survived because even as the, pl the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Chican, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around her daughter's body, and would not let go. When the plane crashed and hit, Paula Chican absorbed the blow of the fall and the impact. Her body protected Cecilia from the flames that were to follow. Nothing could separate that mother from the love that she had for her child. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall or the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, nothing could separate her. Such is the love that our Savior has for us. He left heaven, lowered himself to the cross, covered us with the sacrifice of his own body to save us. When Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm talking about Christ in the church, he's talking about sex is meant to be sacrificial. Two, it's it's not using, number one, it is not about using someone for your consumption to get your rocks off or to express your humanity. It's about serving the other person in love. Christ's commitment to the church is not just sacrificial, it's also permanent. It's a covenant. Now, every time I do a wedding, I talk about the difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract is something that I enter into for my own benefit to get something, and I will do it for, I'll hold up my end of the bargain as long as the other person is holding up their end of the bargain. If my landlord cuts off the heat, I'm not paying my rent, right? That's a contract. A covenant is I don't give you, uh, I'm not giving you a thing. I'm giving you my life. And this is what the Bible talks about when it talks about marriage. It talks about marriage is this covenant that's binding and it's permanent. And number three, it's also an expression of intimacy. It's definitely not the only sign, but sex is meant to point towards the intimacy um, that God experiences with his people in the church. It's close. It's inseparable. It's not meant to be something that uh, is detached from the fullness of our, ourselves 
or our humanity. humanity. Now, here's the biggest problem with our current culture. Um, we, are mo we have a lot of different components to who we are, and there is no easy separation between who we are. We are emotional beings, and social beings, and intellectual beings, and physical beings, and spiritual beings. And the call of Scripture is the, the biblical ethic and the Christian ethic of sex is that we're not just giving a slice of our lives for a limited period of time. We're giving all of ourselves to another person. And if we settle for less, we will not experience the ultimate good. Good sex is a result of a husband and wife that are socially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically tied together in a covenantal union. Now, I've been to, I went to a funeral a couple of days ago for a friend's mother, and um, what you see laying in a casket is someone whose body and spirit have been separated. Like, that's the, the definition of death. And part of the reason sex in our culture is so dead is because it separates the body from the spirit. It's only one facet of who you are. And my goal for everybody in this room is that one day for all of those who want to be married, uh, those of you who are married, that you would have better sex. Except for my parents. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> so I want, to, I want to present to you um, the standard ethic of, of sex versus the Christian sexual ethic. The way our culture talks about sex is that sex is an, act, is an activity. Right? Sex is an activity, something you do. The Christian ethic of sex is that it's communication. Sex is not an activity, it is a communication. Our culture has too low a view of sex. That is just an activity you do or don't do. And check this out. When that is the standard, it's all about performance and technique. Are you doing a good job? Are you better than the last person? Are you as good as the next person will be? And sex is dehumanizing because it's all about the performance of how you're doing instead of me giving myself to you, you giving yourself to me. And we have already given ourselves totally to each other. Scripture raises a bar. Now, what I would love for all of you to do, especially those in DNA groups, is to read the whole Song of Solomon. I didn't want to read, there's a couple of passages in there, a little too spicy, and I was like, if I read those, their attention is gone and never coming back to what I'm saying. But there's a couple of scriptures that are more tame, and it says, uh, Song of Songs 2 and 2, it says this, Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. Songs, a Song of Songs uh, 5 and 16 says, His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. And one of the things that um, it talks about in all of Song of Songs is this, really, you don't know where the affirmations begin and where the, the physical contact ends. Like, they, they are... It is one message. It is that your bodies are communicating these messages um, to the other person. Here are the messages of all of what Song of Songs is communicating. Here's the communication that sex is intended to communicate. You are loved. You are lovable. And I give myself to you. You are loved. You are lovable. And I give myself to you. Now, if I were to come in this, in, on, on the stage and slam my iPad down on the table and cross my arms, you'd be like, yo, Jordan must have had a rough night last night because my body language is communicating something. My body communicates things regularly, actually. Your body communicates things regularly. And sex is meant to be a communication, not an activity. Years ago, um, my boy was talking to his girlfriend, and he was just talking, just trying to you know, give her sweet nothings and talking about how much he loved her. 
And we were out, and she was just rolling her eyes, and he was like, I'm going to love you forever, and it's always going to be me and you. And she was like, all right, bro. Like, we've had this conversation 19 times. The ring store is right there. Like, if you want to make it permanent, if you really want to make that declaration, you'll make the declaration. But you don't want to. See, legally speaking, like, this is not even, like, spiritually deep and not like that. Legally speaking, you can end any relationship that you're in that's not a marriage like that. You can text your boyfriend right now and be like, it's done. And then just hit block on iMessage, and it's done. <laughs> Every time before a wedding, I always, like, jokingly say, I probably should stop making this joke, but I, I jokingly say to the, to, the, to the couple, it's not too late. Like, you don't have to do this today. Like, we can still have a party without you. Like, you don't have to do Like, if, you're, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to. Your parents will be disappointed. The people who flew from out of town will probably be disappointed. But you can end it. Even if you are minutes away from walking down the aisle, you can end it. Now, the reason you cannot do that to a marriage, because marriages are legally intertwined, and to get out of it is extremely painful, and um, it's a long, long, long process. Now, one of the reasons that Scripture limits sex to a husband and to a wife, and it assumes that only they can make the type of commitment uh, that would communicate the thing that the Bible intends for it to communicate. You can't fully say that you are loved and lovable and I give myself totally to you unless you have given yourself totally to the other person. So sex is not just an activity, it is communication. Not just a part of me, but all of me. And isn't that our greatest desire? To be seen, to be loved. Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw, off, throw at us. Instead of just the terrible feeling of how did I do, sex is meant to communicate that we are loved, lovable, and giving ourselves to the other person. Now, I want to make a generalization. Uh, this one is to the married people in the room. I want to make a generalization knowing that this one does not apply to everybody in the room, okay? So I know for every generalization, this does, not, this does not talk to everybody in the room, and I realize that. But here's what I've seen in a lot of marriages, and you can prevent this from happening in your marriage if you ever want to be or plan on being married one day. The husband sees sex as self-indulgence, and the wife resists being used. And that starts a vicious cycle of resent. The husband resents his wife because she's not as sexually available as he wants her to be, and the wife resents being used and blamed for his dysfunction. And what I've seen so many times in so many different marriages, because people have not been discipled in sexuality, they just try to use each other. They try to control each other. And it never leads towards the intimacy that God had intended for people to have. Author Jay Stringer, uh, he says this, Many men express anger at their wives for their apparent fickleness with desire. But beneath the surface is intimidation. A man intuitively recognizes that a woman's desire is far deeper and more complex than his own. Although she may have ebbs and flows of sexual desire, the holistic longing she has for intimacy will often far surpass his own. Confronted with this reality, a husband can see it as an invitation for personal and relational growth, or he will default to an angry disappointment that his wife's arousal does not function in the same masculine manner. For men to change, they must exchange blame for the opportunity to grow. We have to be re-discipled into what sexual freedom is. 
There's a lot of men who get married thinking that their wife is the ticket to, uh, their wife is the conductor of the freak train, and they try to use her for this, their enjoyment and consumption. But true freedom, true freedom in marriage is the ability to love the other. Like, that's what freedom is. It's not to control someone else for your desire. Now, alternatively, when sex is viewed as a mere activity, when sex is just viewed as an activity, like going apple picking or something, as opposed to an opportunity to communicate something to your spouse, sex is viewed as secondary and recreational whenever you feel like doing it. And then it loses its value to communicate that you are loved, lovable, and I give myself to you. The second thing about sex is that sex is disconnected from our spirituality versus sex is meaningfully connected to your spirituality. So the standard view of sex is that it's disconnected from our spirituality, the Christian ethic of sex that is meaningfully connected to your spirituality. Uh, when we started talking about this series of Embodied, we used scriptures to talk about how your body was meant to be lived for the glory of God. And there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians that says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that one. Um, I'll just put that one on the shelf. But I think we glorify God with our body by controlling our sexual desires. Every person is called to submit their sexual desires to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And here's the truth that I found to be true in people we're, we're talking to at the church and a truth that I've unfortunately seen in my own life. If you cannot control your sexual desires, you will inevitably seek to control other people to gratify them. If you cannot control your sexual desires, you will seek to control other people to gratify them. This is why pornography is so convenient. The answer is always yes, and it puts the world at your fingertips. Philippians 3 gives us a really sobering scripture where it talks about desire, and it says, For I have often told you, and now say it again with tears, that many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. What Paul is basically saying is that so many people are engaged in animalistic behavior. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying that with animals, there is no separate, there's, not, there's nothing separating the impulse and the action. Their God is their stomach. They obey their stomach. Months ago, my wife and I and my family went to Florida, and we went to National Park on those, uh, those wind boat tours, the Everglades, and we learned all about alligators. And, um, and uh, one of the things we learned was that like a, a mother alligator will eat her three-year-old. If she's hungry and the alligator's there, she'll eat him. Like, you should have gone out, you know, um, you shouldn't have stayed out late last night. And, uh, and why, why does she do that? Like, that's, that's unthinkable to us right now to, to do that to your young. But her God is her stomach. What she obeys is her appetite. That is what she, if she has an impulse, a desire, she will carry it out. Now, when Scripture tells us and warns us against this, it's saying that you and I would do very well to control our appetites. Now, we're going to have a whole message on appetites, and we'll get to that in a number of, of weeks. The last one is that sex is a way, the standard ethic says sex is a way to please myself versus sex is a sign of, of intimacy. Here are the signs and here are the messages. I am one with you. I accept you totally, past, present, and whatever the future may hold. I give myself entirely to you. I'm family with you. This is the message of the gospel. This is why Paul says it is about the mystery of Christ and the church. Now, when I say the sexual ethic in the scripture is beautiful, like, if you think about it seriously, like, honestly, which one would you rather have? 
Someone who says, you can have this part of my body for 20 minutes, and depending on how good you do, you might get another crack at it. Or would you rather have someone who says, I've given you all of me, not just for this time that we're coming together physically, but I've given you me, and this is a rehearsal of our vows together. Every time we come together, it's rehearsing that I have given my life for you and you have given your life for me. This is a sign of intimacy that God wants for us to have when the Bible talks about sex. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, a lecture by uh, a psychotherapist, um, Jay uh, Stringer, on November 10th. It's roughly titled, Your Sexual Story. it would be a time for us to dig a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that I couldn't even uh, get to today to understand how we have been formed and how we need to be reformed so that sex becomes a beautiful thing that God intended for it to be. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am grateful for just listening ears and receptive hearts to your words. Um, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would seal in our hearts everything that we needed to hear. And Lord, that it would be, it would be helpful. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.